Let's talk weather and more with the guy who preceded Pat Pagano as our morning weatherman here, my buddy, Mike Solomon. Mr. Solomon, great to catch up with you again this morning. Tell the folks what you've been doing since the days that you were waking up with Wayne and the weather here at WILI. Well, good morning, Wayne. Good morning, everybody. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. And, um, you know, it's been a while. I think the last time you and I spoke was uh, back in the summer of 2016. I just come back from a deployment uh, over in Iraq, and uh, I was in the area when I returned, and uh, I paid a visit to the studio with uh, my little guy, Dylan. Uh, At the time, he was, uh, let's see, doing the math. He was seven going on eight. Um, He just turned 15. So, uh, yeah, things are moving quickly. And um, since we last last spoke, um, we've been doing a lot. Um, So... uh, I'll, you know, if you want me to begin with uh, the Navy, or you, I don't know where you want me to begin here, Wayne. Well, I know some of the answers here. They include the Navy. They include your work as a police officer. And we'll also talk about the aforementioned Dylan and your travels with his youth hockey team. But for the starters, why did you stop doing the weather? Why aren't you doing the weather now? And why is your former boss, Mr. Brigano, doing it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned Pat. I do want to thank Pat as well. You know, probably the two best decisions I made in terms of, uh, you know, studying meteorology and working in the field. One, uh, I was working for Pat back in uh, 1995. I started working for Pat and I was with Pat at Metro weather until 2005. And, uh, like you mentioned, uh, I was your, uh, your morning weather guy from, uh, 2000 to 2005. I, I took over after Ron Anderson uh, had left uh, Metro Weather. Yeah, Ron Anderson left Weather to go into the pizza-making business in New Jersey. That's right, absolutely. He left to go uh, into the pizza industry, and I left to uh, to go work at the NYPD. Um, and then Pat uh, took over, uh, you know, doing the uh, the weather forecast with you. Um, but yeah, I had an experience with uh, the NYPD. A great thing about the NYPD was um, they're very familiar with uh, military reservists. So I was able to keep my job in the Navy uh, while still working for the NYPD. And um, I was able to work over at Naval Air Station, Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> as an aviation weather forecaster. Um, so that was really the highlight of my career, was working out uh, with uh, pilots, uh, Navy pilots who were flying in and out of uh, Naval Air Station, Willow Grove. And I got the chance to uh, brief them on weather conditions uh, in and around the, the Northeast wherever they were flying to. I also got a chance to work over in uh, Rota, Spain, um, just after 9-11, and, um, you know, work with aircraft that were flying in and out of uh, Afghanistan and over to the Middle East. Um, and then after that, uh, I went back to the NYPD for, for quite some time. I kept the uh, Navy Reserves uh, at a minimum for a little bit. Um, during my time with the NYPD, I did 60 years of good, hard street work on patrol, um, then I transferred over to counterterrorism in Lower Manhattan for about five years. Um, and then now, most recently, uh, I was able to earn my detective shield with special victims back in uh, 2016. Um, but since 2018, so I did two years of special victims, but since 2018, uh, the Navy has gotten hold of me uh, pretty much most of the time. So for the last five years, I've been on active duty with the Navy. And my most recent assignment um, I'm working down in Washington, D.C. Um, at an organization called uh, NGA, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Um, I'm doing really lots of interesting work. 
Um, we have a team of what we call METOC officers in the, in the military, in particular the Navy, uh, METOC standing for Meteorology and Oceanography. And our team consists of um, Navy weather, uh, Air Force weather folks, uh, a Marine forecaster, as well as civilians. So it's quite a team. We even have a climatologist on staff as well. And we cover global weather issues in terms of uh, humanitarian aid. Uh, for instance, we were just tracking uh, tropical cyclone by Pole Joy that just uh, hit along the Indian-Pakistan border um, this past week. Um, before that, we were tracking storms out in the Pacific that came very close to uh, uh, U.S. Uh, air base out in Okinawa, Japan, um, causing some wind and uh, uh, water damage out that way. So uh, real interesting work. I just started working down in D.C. back in December. Again, I have to put my NYPD uh, job on hold for a little bit. Uh, but, again, they worked real well with, uh, with military members kind of going off and doing duty and then coming back. Of course, I'll have to go back to the PD at some point. But right now I'm just enjoying doing what I love, which is meteorology and, and uh, forecasting weather all across the world. So it's, it's been interesting. Um, yeah, I'll stop there for a second if you have any questions, and then I'll move on to my travels with Dylan most recently. Well, I thought the me talk was what happens here in the morning. You know, me talk, then you talk, then me talk, then you talk. Hey, tell a story about how in your police work with the New York police, one of your assignments included, I believe it was watching the bullpen during, was it a Mets playoff game or something? Absolutely, yeah. Great memory. Actually, it just came up over the weekend because uh, the Mets were playing the Cardinals this past weekend. Um, and during the uh, fall of 2006, uh, I was a rookie cop working in Queens, and um, I had an opportunity to work in Shea Stadium. At the time, still called Shea Stadium before they switched over to City Field. And uh, the Mets were in the playoffs. They're playing the Cardinals, and the Cardinals went on to win the World Series that year. Uh, my assignment for the night was to work the ball pen because uh, fans were a bit unruly and uh, they were concerned they were going to start throwing uh, objects, beer cans, or whatever at the uh, Cardinals pitchers warming up. So they kept a police officer in the ball pen. And I got friendly uh, with some of these guys. Uh, they gave me a baseball. They had it signed and everything for me. Uh, real nice guys. I'm sorry I couldn't give you names. If people are like, well, what pitchers? I, I couldn't even tell you. Uh, but it was, a, it was a great experience, a lot of fun, um, even more so. So the Mets were eliminated that year. And, uh, no, I'm sorry, so that was 2006. Fast forward to 2008, the final year of Shea Stadium, another great assignment, um, the last and final game at, uh, at Shea Stadium. The Mets, again, they needed a win to get into the playoffs, I believe, and they did not get that win. So they were, they were the, you know, the season was over. It was kind of a sad note, but... There was a big celebration, kind of honoring all the old-timers, um, bringing them out one last time. And I had the position along the third baseline, and all these old-timers started coming out of the ballpen, and they were walking down towards home plate, and they were doing this big ceremony. And as they walked down the third baseline, they started shaking hands with me and other people that were kind of standing there, security guards and whatnot. And I got to shake hands with all these, like, you know, uh, you know some of them uh, Hall of Famers. Uh, in particular, uh, Tom Seaver, I got to shake his hand, and um, you know it was just a it was just a great experience being out there in Shea Stadium.
Yeah, and then a year or two later, Tom Seaver is telling the story. I got to shake Mike Solomon's hand. That 2006 NLCS that you're talking about went seven games, and the Cardinals eventually won game seven in New York, three to one. But that's pretty cool that you had that duty down there. Well, let's talk a little bit about weather here. And does your weather work include things like tracking a Chinese spy balloon? So, yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too much into that, but what I want to tell you about was kind of interesting. So, obviously, what I'm talking about is not, I mean, it's been over the news, so it's not like I'm revealing any, anything uh, secret here. Uh, but what was interesting on a weather aspect is, you know, this balloon, as we all know, because it was in the news, it was kind of floating across the United States, and people started scratching heads like, what's going on here? So, obviously, they turned to the weather folks, and one of the things we do, again, I mentioned one of my first assignments as an aviation weather forecaster, um, is upper-level winds. I mean, that was a big thing with kind of tracking this balloon and seeing where it's going to go. Um, so they turned to the weather folks, and I'm on the team, and uh, one, that was one of our first assignments, um, you know, was to find out as this thing tracks into the United States, where is it going to go, what's steering it, you know. And one one things I found interesting, because, of, uh, again, this is information that was put out there in the newspapers and whatnot, uh, was how high this balloon was, you know, how high up in the, uh, it was close to the stratosphere, so I actually had to break out the textbook and, and see what the winds were like in the stratosphere because we're not once you get over about sixty thousand feet or so, you're dealing with a different type of wind. You're not generally the weather. Weather in terms of you know wind and rain occurs uh, at levels below sixty thousand feet. So this balloon was quite high. So I had to break out the textbook and see what do stratospheric winds do. So it really it uh, I, I loved the diving into the textbooks and and kind of giving that information back to the powers that be. And uh, it was a real interesting experience. And, uh, yeah, again, this was over the news. And, uh, you know, obviously I had to wait for it to break before I could even talk about it. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it, was, it was really interesting to track that thing. So. Right. So was part of your responsibility with that and with other things up there in the stratosphere, tracking those wind directions? And were, were you involved, or at least were your people involved, with predicting what the direction would be. Would it be going over Wyoming? Would it be going over Colorado? And where would it over become a place where it comes over the U.S. border from Canada? Things like that. Absolutely. And that's one of the really interesting things about my job is uh, our team gets together and we, we have conversations about that. Things come up uh, worldwide. In this case, it was uh, across our nation, uh, this particular incident, that we talk and we kind of come up with an idea of where um, you know, this thing was going to go. Uh, NOAA had put out, uh, and again, this is, this, this is something that was uh, released, um, that uh, NOAA put out a track. And, uh, you know, so they, they, there was other agencies involved, not just ours, uh, but everybody had, had eyes on it and were kind of watching this thing float across the United States. And, um, you know, as we all know, uh, what was the final outcome of that? So um, real interesting uh, thing that occurred. Along the same lines, would you be involved in things like tracking Canadian forest fire smoke in the last month? Yeah, another interesting uh, situation that arose, um, and as you can, as you know, up in the Northeast, in particular, I saw pictures. I was down in D.C. at the time when that smoke. So this is not the first time we've had this this season. Earlier in the season, earlier in the spring, we were getting smoke coming down from uh, Alberta, Canada, out in the west. And the upper-level winds, the jet stream was diving down over the North Pacific Northwest and tracking across the Great Lakes and into the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic states, and they were bringing that plume of smoke. And you can actually see it on the satellite picture, that smoke coming from Northwest 
uh, I'm sorry, from, you know, from Canada, from Alberta, into the northwest part of the United States, and then, like I mentioned, across the Great Lakes and the northeast and the mid-Atlantic. However, more recently, as we all know, the fires over Nova Scotia really brought some plume of smoke across the northeast. The pictures out of New York City were apocalyptic with that yellow, orangish glow to the sky. And uh, down in D.C., we did get quite a bit of haze and smoke, not to the extent that I saw from pictures from up in New York, uh, but that was really interesting. So then, of course, the conversation comes is like, you know, this is unusual. What's, what's going on? And, of course, the first thing that people like to throw out these days is, uh, oh, blame everything on global warming. And, again, that's a debate we, can, we could probably do for another, another day if we want because, you know, the, the, the field itself, there's debate on both sides. But, anyway, I'll stick to the, just this situation itself. Um, the fires, you know, you talk about forest management, and that's something the United States does very well. And from what I understand, from what I'm reading, that's something that uh, Canada has not done so well over the years is forest management. What is forest management? Forest management is keeping brush and, and uh, fallen trees cleared out. So when there is a dry period and high winds and low humidity conditions that are right for a fire and something sets it off, from what I'm reading, again, I've heard that there's been several arrests for you know arson, whether or not it was intentional or not. I mean, there's rules at campsites, especially during dry conditions, the things you can and can't do. We've seen it many times out west. You know, they have really strict conditions about camping and whatnot and putting your fires out. So what actually ignited this? Could it have been dry lightning? Could it have been a forest fire? I'm sorry, could it have been a campfire that wasn't properly taken care of? Was it full-blown arson? It's hard to say. Uh, but, um, again, the smoke was picked up by an upper-level low a low-pressure system that was uh, off the northeast coast of the United States, very common for the springtime, and it just took a, that the counterclockwise circulation around that low, just took all that smoke over uh, Nova Scotia, and it just filtered, it just brought it right down into the northeast part of the United States, and it produced that apocalyptic look to the sky with that smoke and haze. One other note of interest, so over the last several years, the, the track of hurricanes, missing the east coast of the United States, but moving due north and paralleling the east coast of the United States that have made impact across Nova Scotia. So what does that what does that have done? What it's done is brought down even more trees than than normal. So they've had a lot of down trees across forested areas in Nova Scotia. And again, like I mentioned, it's all about forest management. And if those trees aren't properly removed and you get a you get a fire season that's a little bit above normal as the case here, here with this year with the dry conditions, the high winds, um, it's a lot of fuel to burn, and that's what we've seen. Mike, you were doing the weather for me back on September 11th, 2001. What were your memories of that day? So uh, it's clear as, as clear as yesterday. It's incredible that 20-plus years have gone by. Um, so you and I were doing our normal live weather feed at 8.40 in the morning. And uh, I think we wrapped up around 8.45, 8.50 or so. And uh, I'd walked out of the booth. Um, this is at Metro Weather. I'd walked out of the booth back onto the main forecasting floor where Pat, uh, Pat Pagano was doing his weather report for, for a different radio station. I think he was doing an 8.50 live for a station out of Long Island. And um, we had a TV, you know, TV there like most offices do. And the TV was muted for obvious reasons. We're broadcasting at the time. So at the bottom of the TV screen, though, I see a little 
little thing crawling across that said, uh, you know, plane. I think it said small plane initially. Small plane uh, has hit the, you know, the, 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 the World Trade Center. I almost want to say it said North Tower, but I don't know if it did say that. But I just remember it said small plane hit the tower. So I'm pointing to Pat um, to look, but obviously he's busy. And he kind of like gives a glance and he kind of makes an expression on his face, but he goes back to doing his work. And uh, when he finishes his live forecast, uh, we put the TV back on and we're, we're watching. We're trying to, as everybody was, trying to figure out what was going on. And as they're trying to figure out what's going on, I forget the reason why, but I had to go down the, you know, the hallway. So I went down the hall for just a minute or two, came back. And at that point, I mean, Pat's face was like, you know, expression was much different. He goes, Mike, you are not going to believe this. I just watched on live TV another plane um, hit the World Trade Center. At that point, uh, we knew the country was under attack. Uh, not too much longer after that, you know, the Pentagon we got reports of, and um, it was just such a really such a I don't you know I only way I could use really just a scary day because we were under attack. It's never been experienced before, um, and uh, you know, and then of course being a Navy reservist, that kind of kicked in too, knowing knowing that I was probably going to have to uh, go back and active duty and deploy at some point, which. You know, we could talk about that, uh, you know, another point. But just that day in itself was just such a sad, scary day, you know. And just to find out later on that, uh, you know, friends of ours had lost, uh, you know, a brother in the, in the tower. It just, you know, made it even worse. But um, just really unfortunate, just a, a really sad day. Yep, something that we all have our own special memories of. It was kind of crazy here that morning as well. Let's turn to another non-weather related topic that is totally different and that is your younger son dylan who has become quite the hockey player so you've been quite the traveling man people talk about soccer moms you're a hockey dad aren't you oh yeah absolutely so this goes back to the summer of 2018 uh dylan said to me he's 10 years old at the time and he he said he wanted to play hockey i gave him a chance to go out to the rink see how he skated and he took it up real well um for his birthday that year which by the way two days from now is his birthday june 21st he'll turn 15 so just about five years ago i went out and got him all his hockey gear and set him up to the uh, summer hockey camps and he started off playing what we call rec leagues like a local uh rink has like just kids that kind of a youth league um he went from there to a travel team and then a school team so where he's currently at now he plays for a double a uh long island hockey team called the long island rebels it's a double-A team, and they do a lot of traveling. Um, he plays for a, a former NHL player who's now a coach, uh, Ben Wahog. He played for the Islanders. He played for the Dallas Stars, I believe, and one other team that I can't think of right now. But either way, but as a coach, and he pushes them real hard. He makes the team uh, go out to these tournaments that kind of raises them up to a different level. So sometimes in these tournaments, they'll play teams that are triple-A, not just double-A teams that are older in age so these are 14 to 15 year olds the last tournament we just did they were playing against 16 year olds and like you mentioned it involves a lot of traveling so this past year alone we've been going back for most recent all the way back through the season so we just did a tournament up in montreal uh that was that was an experience how the kids play hockey in canada um we also they, the, the team made the state finals that was in buffalo new york um we also did what they call a ccm world invites we did two of those one was in chicago and one was in port huron in the middle of winter if you can imagine flying into detroit and then driving northeast uh towards the canadian border to port huron to play there 
lots of tournaments in New Jersey. I don't know why they've captured. Uh, I guess the, the ranks they they developed there. Their their facilities with multiple ranks, so they're able to um, you know to host a lot of these tournaments down in New Jersey, in particular South Jersey around the Philly area. So we've been down there, and finally Baltimore has something called Silver Sticks, and the timing is not the best. It's the day after Thanksgiving, so if you can imagine. Last year, Dylan and I, we had to say goodbye to his grandmother and jump in the car after our Thanksgiving dinner and drive down to Baltimore, Maryland for a four-day tournament. This year is a little bit different. Now I'm living and working in D.C. Uh, I told Dylan's mother that I think he's going to come to spend uh, Thanksgiving with me and we'll make the hour drive from D.C. to Baltimore this year for Thanksgiving. So, yeah, it's been an experience. Lots of traveling. Did he get that hockey DNA from Daddy? He did. He did. Um, you know, I, I played hockey not to the level he's he's exceeded where I you know the level that I played. I played high school hockey. Um, just you know, I played for my school. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. I played afterwards in uh, different leagues, different men's leagues, into my thirties. Um, but he's inspired me. You know, watching him play, I actually got a chance to get back in the ice uh, recently and play hockey again. It's just such a, it's such a great sport. Just a just a lot of fun. So now, do either of your boys? Ryan, the older brother, Dylan, the hockey-playing younger brother, have any interest in taking up meteorology as a profession or, for that matter, Navy or, for that matter, police work, all of which you've done? Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, you know, uh, it's funny when you have two. Uh, they're like complete opposites. So it's funny. Uh, Dylan, since he's been just a, just a little baby, he's been really attached to me and you know, from the beginning, he's always said, yeah, I want to be in the Navy. I want to be in the police department. So he's got that, you know, and I, I see this, you know, I've done a little Navy recruiting for a, for a time. And I, I see this when, when kids come and they want to join the military, I, it's, I feel the, 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 those that excel are the ones that played in organized sports and on a team. I have obvious reasons, teamwork, competitiveness, um, and just, you know, these kids, they really push themselves. They have the drive to make themselves better and be part of a team. So um, I can see Dylan going into the Navy or going into the military, excuse me, uh, for that point. Um, and, and Ryan, my older son, where he's never really wanted anything to do with the military at all, more recently he's changed his major in college. So he just completed his first year of studies and originally went in as a uh, business marketing type of uh, major. But he came home you know, at the end of the first semester of last year and he said to me, I think I want to study criminal justice, so we'll see. There's some hope. Perhaps my older son will uh, will follow my footsteps in terms of uh, the the career of uh, law enforcement. So we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> wow, that's pretty cool. Hey, we're talking about some of the stuff that you've done, uh, including in between active duty, and one of them's oceanography. And I think that's intriguing, the fact that you and I talk many times about the day-to-day weather patterns and short-term, long-term things like that. But I wasn't aware that you're into oceanography. What are some of the things you do with the oceans? So with the Navy, um, you, it's almost it's automatic. So the Air Force, you could be a meteorologist. You could stick to aviation weather, and that's your job. With the Navy, it's a requirement. Our officer title is called METOC, Meteorology Oceanography. So METOC for short. So our eight-month forecasting school includes meteorology and oceanography in that mix so again eight months of studies and i i enjoyed every every day of those eight months um but when you come out you you're assigned to a particular job um obviously you know the navy uh aviation is a big part of it i worked a lot at naval air stations and was able to 
forecast weather for pilots who are flying off to different parts of the country and different parts of the world. And that's really my joy. That's my passion. But again, you're, you're a meat talk officer in the Navy, and to excel in your rate, the Navy wants you to do both sides of the house. So my meteorology side definitely has been dominant, but I've got a chance to do some oceanography work. Um, winds and seas forecast for, for ships was a big part. But also, I got a chance back in, I want to say, 2013, 2014, we had five oceanographical research vessels out in the South China Sea, in the Gulf of Thailand, off the coast of Vietnam, and we got to do studies in terms of um, air pollution. Uh, we were doing particulates, suspended uh, particulates in the atmosphere, and how they would affect. And you know, the way you measure, believe it or not, you would think, well, how are you going to study these little pollution, these the little particulates in the atmosphere? What they do is they actually take water samples, and they run it through a filter if they want to find out what these particulates are. And you send these water samples back to a lab, and they find out what's floating in the water, and it helps you determine what's also up in the air. As you can imagine, the atmosphere and the ocean are kind of intertwined one and together. So a good way to study uh, what's polluting the air is also study the ocean. So that's my real one um, you know, mission, if you want to call it that, research, was going on this oceanographical vessel out in the Gulf of, uh, the Gulf of Thailand, the South China Sea. And having the chance to to be out there in this little little boat um, and floating around, we're doing all types of experiments, taking water samples and air samples, and you know doing all these neat things. So um, yeah, so that's the the one mission I can say that I got a chance to call myself an oceanographer. Well, speaking of the oceans, I'm sure that you keep track on the water temperature of the ocean. The average span in Connecticut between landfalling hurricanes is 16 years. The last landfalling hurricane in Connecticut was Bob in 1991. We're a little behind the curve. We've had some warm weather the last couple of years. The water level is high. What do you anticipate in general for the effect of the Atlantic hurricane season on Connecticut? And what's the role that water temperature and above average temperatures, we've been below average this month, but above average temperatures would play in that? You know, I'm glad you asked this question, and I'm glad you mentioned Bob. So during Hurricane Bob, I was I was studying meteorology in college, and uh, to this day I still remember my mom being really upset because I made my older sister drive me down to Jones Beach on the south shore of Long Island just as the storm was making landfall. Um, so it was it was a lot of fun for me. I mean, obviously we don't want people's uh, homes to be damaged or anybody to get hurt or anything like that, but just to, it's kind of fun to track these storms. Um, that was Hurricane Bob, like you mentioned, 91. So just getting to this season and the water temperatures and what's going to influence it, um, we've all known they, they, they well advertise this uh, in the news, but El Nino is back. And why do I mention El Nino? It's the warming of the Pacific waters. Why does that have to do with Connecticut? Well, not so much the warming of that particular area of the Pacific Ocean um, that's going to affect uh, Connecticut, but what it does is it affects the weather patterns and how does it do that. Well, it creates greater wind shear. It enhances the southerly jet stream, and it creates more wind shear across the Atlantic. And what that does is it does not allow tropical systems to organize and become full-blown tropical storms. So that in itself will keep the numbers lower this year based on El Nino affecting the weather pattern and the upper-level winds not being conducive to development in the Atlantic. Now, more to your question in terms of water temperatures and how they influence storms themselves. So let's say 
one of these tropical systems do make it through that strong wind shear of the Atlantic and make it to off the East Coast of the United States. And if what you're saying is correct, I haven't seen the numbers, but if the water temperatures are warmer than average off the coast of uh, New Jersey, off the coast of Long Island, Long Island Sound, off the Cape Cod area, if the temperatures are warmer, of course, that's going to help storms um, stay at the tropical level. And the reason why I say stay instead of intensify is because even if the water temperatures are up a degree or two here um, in the Northeast, you need water temperatures to be quite warm to cause uh, intensification of storms. So at this point, when they get this far north, it's more the fact of can they maintain, can they maintain their tropical status in the cold Atlantic waters this far north? So a degree or two could help it maintain that whatever it is. If it's a Cat 2, Cat 1, a tropical storm at that point, it'll help it maintain its strength at that point once it reaches this far north. Mike, do you think it's significant that May in Connecticut was below average? First half of June has been below average. Does that reduce the likelihood that we might get a landfalling hurricane and or tropical storm this summer? Yeah, great point. You know, um, the season overall, uh, let's let's take one step back to winter. As you know, we had a pretty easy winter, a pretty mild winter. We're out west. They got hammered. They had cold temperatures. They had snow. uh, Snow levels were down to about 1,000 feet, I think, in L.A. I mean, they had enormous amounts of moisture out west and cold, cold temperatures. And um, the reason why I mention that, if you could picture the jet stream out in the winter taking that dip out west, and we were in that ridge here in the east and kept us warm. But like you mentioned now, we've had a rather cool spring going back to April and May. Um, rather cool. So, yes, absolutely, it's going to um, kind of slow the warming process of the, of the waters off the east coast. So a lot of it also has to do with cloud cover. If we're getting, like, cool, sunny days, but sunny, that, war- that sun is going to warm up the ocean quite a bit. But in contrast, if we get a lot of cloudy days, it's going to kind of inhibit some of that warming. So that will also have an effect. But absolutely, you, you mentioned the cooler temperatures for the spring, and it's slowing the warming of those waters uh, off the East Coast. But all it takes is a couple weeks of just hot, sunny weather, and, and those, those water temperatures will warm up uh, quite rapidly. So. Let's go back to that smoke. We talked about the smoke earlier this morning. Do you think that is something that we're going to be dealing with on a long-term basis, or is that just a one-shot deal because of the fires in Canada? Well, I think it's very unique to this season. Um, you know, a lot of times people like to make long-term outlooks based on what's occurring now. But I want to reference the drought out in western United States. Before this past winter season, people were talking about, you know, such uh, there was no end in sight, the you know, biblical portions, the drought out in the western states. And all it took was one unusually historic uh, cold and wet and snowy and rainy season out in the western states, and it wiped out decades-old drought in one season. So Mother Nature has her own plans. You know, here as forecasters, climatologists, long-range weather forecasters, we do what we could. We look at the weather patterns. We can give you an accurate forecast for the next several days. We can give you outlooks based on certain weather patterns. But in terms of fire weather, you know, in terms of fire conditions, I mean, there's certain unique conditions to exist. One, really dry relative humidities, very high winds, and also fuel for the fire to burn. And I say that because where this, the most recent fire occurred in uh, Nova Scotia, 
Uh, they experienced getting hit by several uh, tropical systems over the last several years that obviously took down a lot of trees in forested areas. And from what I understand, again, I'm not there on the ground. I can't confirm this, but from what I've read, um, there's a bit of an issue with forest management um, in, in Canada. Um, that, that area needs to be cleared out. Um, and then just sticking to my lane in terms of weather conditions, all it takes is, you know, one wet season. And, you know, someone says, oh, this is going to be the, the way things are now. Well, I don't know. You know, Mother Nature, again, has her own ideas. And if, if that part of Canada turns out to be uh, above normal in terms of precipitation for the next, you know, 6 to 12 months or whatnot, this time next year, we won't be looking at such a dramatic, um, you know, fire season for that part of Canada. And let me follow up on that, too, in the sense that we've had very little precipitation the last couple of months around here. We talked about the lower than average precipitation totals the last couple of months. At what level is that smoke? And if we had normal rainfall, when that smoke was a big deal around here, would that help bring it down is the rain above that smoke, or is the smoke above the rain so the rain wouldn't have any effect on it? Well, a couple of factors. You know, the obvious one is is, is the rain occurring over a long period of time um, that would keep, uh, you know, the conditions moist and would help, you know, tamping down the, the, uh, the, the opportunity for the forest fires to start off. Um, but in terms of once the fires are going, and in terms of how it affects. So obviously if you get a nice heavy rainfall, it'll help the firefighters fight those fires. The more moist the conditions, uh, the better off it'll be. And in terms of movement of that smoke, um, that's a great question. I look at upper-level winds in terms of steering those, those, you know, that smoke. Once it reaches the heights of the upper-level winds, it gets carried off away from that origin, away from the, 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 the place of origin where the fires are started. And now it's moved on to different parts of the country and different parts of the world. And uh, that's primarily what I would look at at that point, once the smoke has reached the, those upper levels, is, is just those, those steering winds. Mike Solomon with us today, our former morning meteorologist. And my first morning meteorologist began on Halloween in 1977. It was the legendary Norm MacDonald. And I wonder if in your meteorological travels, you had either crossed paths or heard of Norm MacDonald. He was Boston-based. You're New York-based. That's right, yeah. Uh, so uh, I got my career started uh, at Metro Weather with Pat Pagano in 1995. Uh, I worked with forecasters such as Ron Anderson and Hank Berg. Obviously, Pat and I worked together. Um, Craig Allen, as, you know, he was part of Metro Weather in the origin, um, but had moved on once I got in there. Um, so a lot of forecasters have come uh, through Metro Weather and started their careers and moved on. Um, Norm McDonald was a name that was uh, prevalent when I started at Metro Weather. Uh, Ron Anderson used to refer to him quite often. Um, then you and I, when we first started uh, working together after Ron Anderson had left Metro Weather and I had taken over for Ron for the, as the morning forecaster, um, you know, we, would, we would talk of, um, of Norm quite often. So um, I would say in in uh, professional circles, I've heard of him. Um, I've, I've heard nothing but great things about him. Uh, but uh, to answer your question, no, I've, I've not. Uh, I've never got to know uh, Norm, unfortunately. Mike, what advice would you have for a student, let's say high school, not even middle school at this point, who has an interest in weather? Many people do. That's why we do so much with weather here at this radio station, who would like to get into the field of meteorology and then 
take that a step further and explain it's not all just broadcast meteorology like you have done, like Pat Pagano does. There's a lot of other fields that can also be rewarding in meteorology. And is it, I've got like 18 questions here, is it a viable field? Can you make a living at it? Are there enough jobs right now to go around? I, I do think so. And uh, I, I want to try to answer this across the full spectrum. The first thing I want to start with is having a passion. Um, and it doesn't matter what field you wind up going into. Um, if you love what you do, you're going to do well at it, and you're going to find work, um, and you're going to push yourself to find that work. Um, so, and, you know, I'll take myself, for example. Um, so I've always loved the earth sciences. Um, I've always loved weather in particular and weather forecasting. Um, starting as early as uh, my junior year in high school, I reached out to local uh, TV stations to see if I could do an internship uh, with the local weather forecaster on TV. And I, I was able to secure uh, that weather internship with the help of my high school at the time. So internships are really important. Um, obviously, keeping your grades up, in particular in math and sciences, is very important. Um, starting to do your research in terms of what colleges have meteorology and have the meteorology program. Um, I did two years at a local uh, college and I, I became president of the meteorology club. So I got myself really involved in the field. Um, and then after I transferred, I studied to see, you know, I, I looked into to see what schools would be a good fit for me in terms of meteorology and, and which one had the best program. So that's really what it is. It's the passion, um, is the studies, and the internships uh, to make that happen. So, um, And I really do think it's a, it's a particular niche um, uh, in the in the uh, workforce, uh, not a lot of people um, uh, have the ability to go into that uh, particular job. So, if you have the passion for it, if you have the studies, um, and that could be not just college. Like I mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned to you before that I did a uh, I went through an eight month weather forecasting school for the U.S. Navy. So, it's not just college; it's also real world life experience that'll help you excel in that field. So. And if there are families and students who would like to get into meteorology, there are some really good meteorology schools that are out there. Drop a couple of names on us, the good colleges for meteorology. Well, the ones that stand out for me would be State University of New York in Albany, um, Texas A&M, Penn State College is another, uh, Florida State is another. So, um, yeah, just there's a bunch that's out there. Linden State College used to be a big one. I think that's I believe in Vermont or New Hampshire, someone can probably uh, follow up on that and and give them an answer on that. But I know it's in New England, but Linden State College was a good one. Yeah, I can can add to that, too, that when I spent a a week up there at the summit of Mount Washington back in the 90s, uh, I was in a bunkhouse up there. And the guy that was my roommate was a meteorology student from Linden State College in Vermont. So you're right about that. Uh, And and, uh, did you mention Mississippi State? That's another good one, too, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. I'm glad you mentioned that. So, And the reason why these are still very clear in my mind is because a lot of the weather data that we uh, as forecasters go and retrieve um, come from these universities. So a lot of times when I need to do, when I need to look at numerical weather data for the atmosphere, um, I look at these college websites because they put out, they just, they have a very well-organized website that when I need to find the model data that I need, I'll go to Texas A&M, I'll go to Mississippi State, I'll go to Florida State uh, College, and I'll look up these particular, even, again, I mentioned Albany State College in New York, um, also another good, good uh, site to go to and look for real 
real-time weather data to help in forecasting. Mike Solomon joins us today, the only WILI morning meteorologist who has actually attended the WILI boombox parade. You have memories of that? What are your thoughts about this rather uh, unusual parade, Mike? Well, I had such a good time. And the first parade that I attended back in the summer of uh, 2000, I want to say, let's see, my son was born to that. So it had to be 2004. And I say that because my son, my oldest son, Ryan, uh, my wife was uh, carrying Ryan at the time when we uh, attended the parade. Uh, so that would be the summer of 2004. Ryan was born in November of 2004. Uh, so that was my first parade. And that's when I went as partly cloudy chance of showers. And I had such a good time. I wore a light blue shirt. I put... I came up with this uh, cotton, uh, you know, like uh, hat that I put on my head, you know, billowy cotton to make it look like blue skies with, you know, patchy clouds. So I went partly cloudy. It was cotton balls, Mike. Cotton balls, right. And I had I had a, a squirt gun, so that was my showers, you know, chance of showers part. And I think you gave me a warning. You're like, you're going to get water guns squirted at you, you know, as you're driving down the street. And sure enough, we were rolling down the street, my wife and I, and uh, we were exchanging uh, – you know, water water gun fights with some of the kids on the street and probably some of these adults too. And it was so much fun that first parade. And you were kind enough to uh, to invite us to a nice barbecue afterwards. We had such a blast. And um, and then I was able to come back again another time with uh, this time when both my boys were around and uh, we had a great time. That was more recently. I want to say probably 2016. I think was that was that uh, time we attended. Uh, the boombox parade, and uh, a good friend of mine who was uh, deputy chief of uh, police over in Hartford came over and met us, and he met us at the station, and um, yeah, he, he watched the parade with us, and we had a great time. We, we stayed on Main Street afterwards, had lunch, and I think we even shot some, some rounds of pool and some of the local establishments, and I remember, as you can imagine, my both my boys are very competitive with each other, so I remember them playing pool, and one got mad at the other because he beat him or something, it was, it was a great day. It was such a good time. Both times I attended, I had such a good time, and I'm looking forward to my next one uh, very soon. Uh, when will that next one be, Mike? So um, we were kind of hoping to make it up this year, uh, but I don't. if we don't make it this year, I'm hoping for either uh, 24 or 25 we'll be up there um, and be able to attend the parade. Looking forward to it. Full disclosure, by the way, that was then, this is now. We now discourage the use of water, not just squirt guns like he used back there in 2004, but also the super soakers. And uh, we just had to do that because we're telling people to bring radios to the parade and then they get wet. And that's actually, people have been good about that. So that con- that uh, outfit wouldn't work when you were in the parade back in 2004. But Ryan, we Ryan, that would be the son. Mike, we look forward to seeing you anytime, but especially on the 4th of July here in Romantic Willimantic. We thank you for your years of giving great weather forecasts for us here, and I thank you for being my longtime friend over these years, too. Thank you, Wayne. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation to come and uh, talk this morning. I love talking weather, and of course, I love talking with you. I miss our uh, our morning, uh, you know, uh, live weather reports in the morning back in the day, and uh, I'm uh, always available anytime you want me to come on and talk. I really appreciate the invitation. So great catching up to you, my meteorologic friend, Mike Solomon, on 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.